From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Frank Dobbin is a professor of sociology at Harvard and chair of the Organizational Behavior PhD program at Harvard, where he studies organizations, inequality, economic behavior, and public policy. His 2009 book, Inventing Equal Opportunity, won major scholarly awards, really important research. And what we're going to be talking about on the show today is his large-scale systematic studies that show that most corporate diversity programs intended to create greater opportunity and allow more people to bring their full selves to work, most of them don't work because they place blame rather than engage managers in finding real solutions. The good news? Well, there are initiatives that do work to produce greater diversity and opportunity for positive social change. So get set now to listen and learn about what works, what doesn't, in creating a more diverse workforce, particularly managerial workforce, and what this might mean for you. Frank Dobbin, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks for having me on, Stu. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. Uh, let's dig right into what you have found, and it's, it's really so significant and so important in today's fractious, fractured world uh, in the corporate and public sphere. Uh, your, your research indicates that diversity programs can actually be more harmful than helpful. Can you explain that? Well, what we see in our data and, and what our data are, um, we look at about 800 organizations, mm-hmm. corporations, over about 30 years, and we look at all of the diversity and work-life programs, um, personnel innovations they put in over this time. Mm-hmm. And um, we're able to track what happens to actual workforce diversity in the years after, for example, a firm puts in mandatory mm-hmm. diversity training. So you, you can um, see the impact or at least the, the correlation of, of what, what, the, what the numbers look like in terms of representation of, of underrepresented minorities. Is that right? Yeah, and because we have so much data, we can we can really go beyond correlation. We can see that a change in, say, the diversity training program is followed by a change mm-hmm. in, say, the level of managerial diversity um, for particular groups, um, net of everything else going on, because we have a lot of wow. other information about these firms. So That's a powerful there's design. There's been a lot of studies of... Um, individual practices in a small number of firms, mm-hmm. but we, we have the statistical leverage to really mm-hmm. um, isolate what the effects of particular programs are. And what's discouraging, to go back to your original question, is that uh, a lot of the most popular programs either do nothing to promote diversity or they actually have adverse effects. Unbelievable. 
So, so let's talk about those adverse effects because, uh, and, and I wonder if you could address in describing those adverse, those paradoxically adverse effects, if if that's a part of in any way what we're seeing in the larger uh, social sphere of you know the rise of you know expressions of of white supremacy, uh, which is uh, another kind of backlash. Well, it's a little hard to tie exactly um, what's going on in the workplace to the rise of white supremacy, but it is the case that um, we we see, for example, in our interviews, a lot of frustration at, mm-hmm. um, particularly among white male interviewees, at the idea that um, women and minorities are given particular advantages at work, mm-hmm. and I think one of the one of the reasons uh, we see backlash from some of these practices is that they seem to be offering advantages to, to historically disadvantaged groups. Um, the irony is that a bunch of them don't help, but they give the impression to um, people in the workplace that women and minorities have an advantage. So, for example, mm-hmm. um, mandatory diversity training. Uh, a lot of people respond to that negatively, because they feel like they're being forced to go to something and they're being blamed for being a part of um, the problem rather than engaged in being a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And then they also feel like their employer is giving an advantage to women and minorities. And what we see over the last decades, um, really since for African-Americans since the mid-1980s, is that in the average American corporation, they're they're not doing better in management as a as a proportion than they were 30 years ago. So, for example, we see that um, African American men held about of all of all African American men um, in medium and large corporations in the United States in mm-hmm. the mid 1980s. About six percent were in management jobs, and about six percent of all African American men in large American corporations are in management jobs today. So it's not like, and we see that for most groups, there's just been very little change. So no delta, despite all the hue and cry and effort and energy, uh, and and so and you now with this this powerful data set have some ways of understanding why that is. Uh, That's right. That's right. Well, what we're seeing is that I I think the biggest pattern is that efforts to control individual bias, which is where a lot of our efforts have gone, have generally backfired because people react negatively to being controlled. You know, we know from many years of research in different realms that that people respond positively to be being empowered at work, to give it, to being given the the authority to make decisions, um, to being given goals and asked to pursue those goals as best they can with their of course with their own ideas. We and talk a they, lot about that on this show. Okay, and pe- we know that people respond very negatively to being micromanaged. If mm-hmm. you set, if you put a lot of, of rules in front of people, they they tend to they tend to disobey the rules instead of to go along with them. So, to my mind, it's not at all surprising that, <clears throat> for example, when you put in mandatory diversity training, people will react negatively to it because they feel they're being blamed. That when you put in um, a civil rights grievance procedure, we find it's very discouraging. But 
civil rights grievance procedures, which are designed to remedy bias and to remedy discrimination, have only negative effects on historically disadvantaged groups. Um, so grievance not, procedures I mean, make the problem it, worse? Not, I'm sorry? Grievance procedures make the problem worse, is what you observed. The exactly. So a formal grievance procedure tends to lead to decreases in um, most of the historically disadvantaged groups in management, which is not what not what grievance procedures are supposed to do. They're supposed to do the opposite of that. They're supposed to give you recourse if you feel you've been discriminated against. But we have a pretty good idea of why this why they're having adverse effects. If you look at um, if you look at complaints to Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, there are eighty mm-hmm. to one hundred thousand formal complaints lodged a year in the in the domain of employment discrimination, mm-hmm. and um, about forty to forty five percent of those complaints come with a complaint of retaliation, which means that mm-hmm. when the person initially complained through the internal grievance system, something bad happened to them, or they perceived that something bad happened to them. Ah, so it's not some really kind of retribution. that a formal grievance system would backfire, because mm. when, when we interview um, managers, they don't like them, because they they feel that they they offer employees most of them don't like them they offer employees um a way to get back at them for for negative career decisions um and mm-hmm. it sounds like it it seems from the EEOC data like there is often retaliation against mm-hmm. people who file grievances wow so it's not surprising that a formal grievance procedure uh would, would wouldn't be helpful well, it's discouraging because they were you know, put into place with the best of intentions, but mm-hmm. it looks like in the aggregate they're not very helpful. One thing we're seeing is more employers um, putting into place something like an open-door policy or an option for an informal complaint so that um, employees have a way to address a problem without necessarily going to HR and mm-hmm. asking that a panel be... Uh, put together to hear a grievance. So there are other ways of creating opportunities for voice uh, that that might help to to remedy um, discriminatory conditions without going through the formal process that has all these other negative effects associated with it. Is that right? Well, the, <clears throat> more places are putting in alternatives so mm-hmm. that, that there isn't only the alternative of using a formal grievance system. There's a, there are other recommendations about going to your manager or going to somebody outside of the chain of command mm-hmm. and asking if they can help you. So we've got uh, formal training, which people resent. Let's say white men resent. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yes. Uh, you've got grievance procedures, which which have uh, a negative impact um, because, uh, again, they are resented and often uh, used to, uh, to, to, to harm those who, who bring the, the grievance to begin with. There's uh, hiring tests. Uh, that's another one of the uh, features of traditional programs that, you, that you've studied and also uh, conclude uh, have, have failed. Can you talk about why... Um, you know, mandatory hiring practices to to fight bias have also failed. Well, as a manager, if you're in a company that puts in a formal testing procedure and requires you to test everyone you promote or you hire into a job, um, 
the the response that you have typically is that somebody's taking away my autonomy to make a make a hiring decision. Mm-hmm. And when we interview people, they say, "Yeah, you know, I used to be able to hire the people who I thought would do the job best, and now they they try to force me to hire the person who gets the highest score on the test, or hire from among a group of people who score well on the test." And what we hear things like, "You know, doing well on the test is not a very good indicator that you'll be good at the job." Mm-hmm. So uh, what we see is that um, when formal tests are put in, uh, well, for one thing, managers know that somebody's trying to control their hiring decisions. And as I said, managers don't like to be controlled. None of us do. Hiring is one of the areas in which managers actually have some autonomy. Mm-hmm. So one thing we, we, we discover when we interview um, executives about how these hiring tests work is that a lot of managers don't actually use the mandatory hiring test to hire people. It's HR who mandates that they use the test. And sometimes managers will just say to Eddie, Eddie, you're hired or you're promoted without making Eddie take the hiring test. Hmm. So, And when we delve into this, it looks like a fair number of managers at quite a few of the companies we've, um, mm-hmm. we've been interviewing managers and, and uh, HR executives at, uh, quite a few of them say um, that they, they, the HR managers tell us that they can't control mm-hmm. hiring managers, and they just hire whomever they want. And hiring managers say, "Well, you know, screw the test." It's I'm just some HR bullshit. We don't have to deal with that. I'm hiring you. So, but the irony is, you know, what we see is pretty significant decreases in diversity and management after companies put these tests in. So it's as if, you know, hiring managers were doing their best to promote diversity or doing something to promote diversity. And then after that, once once somebody tried to control them, and I think the implication of a hiring test is that you're not being fair to minorities and women. Um, mm-hmm. Once somebody tries to control them, they... They just kind of let loose and allow their biases and their preferences to 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 run roughshod over the hiring system. Making matters worse for those who would have a more diverse and greater opportunity for, for people who've been traditionally underrepresented. All right, so w- you have very well described how your... Uh, your powerful research uh, design uh, and and method have have uh, yielded these really troubling insights about the lack of uh, progress in in uh, in the representation of women and minorities in in management and and cultivating a more diverse managerial workforce. I know that you also have some evidence based ideas for action to well solve the problem. So tell us, uh, what are what are the practices that work? Well, in general, the things that, that work to promote diversity, and we usually look at diversity of the managerial workforce because that's the hardest workforce to, to, to change. Um, hmm. The things that w- work to promote diversity are the practices that engage managers in actively helping to solve the problem themselves. So the irony is, I think, our, our approach has generally been to try to control the bias of managers in one way or another by 
forcing them to go to diversity training, by forcing them to go through a grievance system if there's a complaint against them, by making them choose people on the basis of tests rather than on the basis of their intuition or what they see in the job interview. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of makes sense if you know, if you think a little bit about psychology that getting people to join your side in the crusade, getting people to help you solve the problem, giving them the problem and asking them for their ideas uh, is going to be more effective than than trying to control them and essentially sending the message that managers are the problem. Right. So can you give us some examples of of how that sort of engagement in, in being a part of the solution and leading the solution has worked? One of the most effective things companies can do is to put together a diversity task force that looks at the data every few months. Mm -hmm. And these task forces are usually um, composed of heads of department. So usually the CEO asks department heads to nominate somebody high up or to come themselves, Mm -hmm. to join themselves. Um, And then usually there's there are um, representatives of different uh, diverse groups within the organization. And they they meet every couple of months usually, and they look at the data. They look at, for example, voluntary terminations and involuntary terminations. They look at recruitment and retention. And they try to figure out where the problems are usually. And then these are people with knowledge of the company, knowledge of how the hiring system works, knowledge of promotion and the kinds of professionals who are needed. Um, So they're in some ways the best people to design solutions. Mm -hmm. So we see that when companies put these task forces into place, um, they're typically followed, and we see this across the 800 companies, by quite significant increases mm-hmm. in managerial diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that works. Can, do you have an example off the top of your head of, of a company that really stands out as having done a good job of this? Well, um, in, our, um, in our analyses, we, uh, we collect data, we anonymize companies when we collect data. But um, if you look around the country, a lot of the leading, um, say, finance firms have been putting in diversity task forces mm-hmm. in the last few years. And I think we're, we can expect to see um, more significant change in that sector than, than we've been seeing. One of, the, one of the reasons these task forces work is that they bring together people who are mostly in leadership or mm-hmm. second, third command in their department. They brainstorm for solutions when they look at the data and figure out what the problems are, say, if it's recruitment versus retention. And then they bring those solutions back to their departments, and they make make sure that people implement the solutions. So they have have legitimate authority to to make it happen. Yeah, and they also become champions. So Mm -hmm. it's no longer HR is making us do X. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, Joey, who's on the diversity committee wants us to try x can you know can we get people to, mm-hmm. to volunteer to help help us out with mm-hmm. this so mm-hmm. it well i was going to ask about so there's a greater a greater sense of ownership and commitment to actually seeing through some some new ways of of, of advancing the cause um, employee resource groups, is that a part of what you have been studying? Because uh, they've come into the news recently with Deloitte having just eliminated them after having a history of being a, one of the leaders in that. 
kind of that aspect of uh, diversity programming. Uh, does does your research speak to the value or lack thereof of such groups? Yeah, we do look at employee resource groups, um, and we find well, if you think about the things that work in our in our analyses, they are things that engage managers in helping to solve the problem, mm-hmm. and they're things that break down connections across race, ethnic, gender groups. You mean that, create connections. Uh, sorry, create connections, break, break down barriers. <laughs> break down barriers. Break Good. down barriers, right. exactly. thought that's what you meant. Sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, so, so engaging so managers the, and breaking down the barriers. Yes, yeah, so, so so employee so resource groups. The problem groups, with employee resource groups. They build barriers, has, right? Sorry? They, they kind of build barriers, right, by they making them barriers. exclusive and homogenous. Exactly. So uh, as your listeners probably know, employee resource groups are usually funded by the by the corporation, and they, they usually bring together people from different race, ethnic, um, gender groups. That Sometimes they're organized around um, LGBTQ status. Mm-hmm. Religion. Sometimes military, military vets, sometimes mm-hmm. around religion. But um, we, we don't see any positive effects of employee resource mm-hmm. groups in the average company. They, they seem to have some small negative effects, um, we see, for example, a small negative effect for African-American men. Hmm. And, w- and when we interview HR managers about why this is, one person who, uh, this was a diversity manager at a large corporation who um, had put in a set of employee resource mm-hmm. groups, mm-hmm. Uh, she said, I feel like I've created a monster. It seemed like such a good idea when I did it. Mm-hmm. But what we end up with is my high school cafeteria all over again. We've got kids sitting at different tables. The talking cool kids to each are other. at one table, and the outliers are somewhere else. And exactly. So you've, so you've people recom- end up spending more of their time mm-hmm. with people from their own race and ethnic group rather than integrating being in groups that break down those barriers. So what does break down the barriers? You talk about mentorship. Uh, self-managed teams, cross-training. Can you talk to some of those ways in which exposure to people who are different, uh, one of the key attributes of successful programs, how does that work and and what advice do you have for people who are living through these kinds of uh, initiatives? Well, if you think about the kind of the the career cycle, at at the first point, um, college recruitment programs that target women and minorities tend to break down those barriers because companies send managers out to do this and the managers themselves are usually they're usually plenty of white men on these in these groups often those white men when we talk to them they say well I didn't really want to go but you know my manager asked me if I would go this year to mm-hmm. help recruit at the historically black colleges and then well I went and, uh, you know, I found some really amazing people who mm-hmm. wanted to work in finance, <clears throat> who wanted to work in tech. And, um, you know, I recruited them. And you can bet when they came back here, I was their biggest booster right. because I'd found this terrific person. And I wasn't going to let my company um, sour them on finance mm-hmm. or sour them on tech. I was going to make sure they mm-hmm. succeeded. So, you know, that's that's one way companies have successfully broke down barriers mm-hmm, between groups. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned mentoring. That's, that's also been very successful. So both college recruitment, special recruitment, and 
um, special mentoring programs for women and minorities have been very effective at improving the representation of women and minorities in management. In mentoring, we we hear kind of similar stories. You know, the way most mentoring programs work is that there's some kind of formal match system that usually goes through HR. Mm-hmm. Sometimes an outside vendor puts in a platform where people can sign up for, can volunteer to be a mentor mm-hmm. or ask to have a mentor. So, most of the mentors are white men because, mm-hmm. uh, because most upper-level managers and firms are white men. And so uh, even an open mentoring program that's open to absolutely everyone, not not a targeted program for women and minorities, even an open mentoring program tends to get um, a disproportionate number of women and minorities Mm -hmm. asking for mentors. And Mm -hmm. that's, we know from many studies that that's because uh, junior white men usually find mentors on their own without they don't the need the help. formal system. Yeah, they, Frank, they, we, we're fast running out of time. I have about 17 more things I want to ask you about. <laughs> Let me choose this one. Uh, the, the C-suite role for diversity leaders in companies, That's you know, we've seen that, that emergent over the last, well, I don't know, a couple of decades. Uh, good thing or not? I think it's a good thing. I think it's um, it's a way to for the company to signal that this is really important to the CEO. Mm-hmm. And um, we we see in our analyses that one of the best things the CEO can do is get out in front of these issues and say, um, "This is important to the company, and mm-hmm. I'm going to make this a priority. And I would I want everybody to follow my lead." So so about that though, should the person who sits in the 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 C-suite diversity role be herself or himself a a representative of a minority group or of the majority group? Which is the stronger signal? You know, that's a very very good question, and we just don't have enough data to Mm. answer it. And the reason we don't is there really aren't many. There are some white women in these roles, but... There Hardly are any white men. No white. Men. I know. There are very few. But I, I think it's an interesting idea. To th- you know, if 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 you're signaling that you know changes is being driven from the top by the people who hold all the formal and informal authority, why not put a person who represents that group in that role? I agree, and I but and I will say one thing: more and more companies have <clears throat> been cycling people from the business through uh-huh. that role, and. Well, they do tend to be white women and members of minority groups. That's a kind of signal that, you know, this is important to the business. Yes. And this this isn't some... It's not just uh, an HR function. ...position that is outside of what we do. This is part of what we do. Last question uh, that I I have time to ask you uh, about, and that is work and life issues. How does that shape workforce diversity generally? Um, We see that almost any nod to work-life integration as an issue for the company Mm -hmm. helps to promote uh, women, white, black, Hispanic, Asian-American women in management. Mm -hmm. So companies that put in any kind of child care resource see significant increases in those groups. Mm -hmm. Um, Having a a work-life position makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. 
having work-life seminars make a big difference, mm. even though in our interviews not so many people go to the seminars, but it's a signal that mm. the company thinks you should be trying to manage your work and life together, and they want to help you. We, we need another show to just dive into that uh, in, in greater depth, but for now, I'm, I'm afraid uh, I have to bring us to a close here. Frank, uh, is there some parting word that you want to offer or better uh, a place where you want to recommend people go to learn more about your research and its, its impact? Well, we have uh, we had the cover article in Harvard Business Review last summer, 2016. Yeah, it's a great article, um, and that's something that you can see online. That's a great place to mm-hmm. that's a great place to start because it it shows a bunch of our research. It's from the and July August can, 2016 issue of Harvard Business Review. That's right, and mm-hmm. you, can, you can still click on it online. Um, and on my website, you can find a number of other papers on our on our research on different topics. So that's Frank Dobbin, D O B B I N. That's right. Frank, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate your time and and the great work that you're doing. Pleasure talking with you, Stu. Thanks for having me. We had a wonderful listener of my Wharton Sirius XM radio show who called to tell us her story about how she implemented a successful mentoring program at her company, United Allergy Services, And she told us how she did it. It was a great case study of the successful kinds of diversity programs that Frank Dobbin describes. So here she is. Mattia, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks. Huge fan of the show. Um, I one thing that you guys haven't mentioned or talked about. Yeah. I'm a senior manager, and I feel like um, I've read a lot of research lately about the importance of, you know, the di- the diversity at the entry level position, but mm-hmm. then um, creating networks specifically for women to network with male coworkers or male um, leaders within the company, because a lot of those positions, you know, do the networking has an impact on. Um, you know, who gets promoted sometimes mm-hmm. or just those relationships and what um, flow of knowledge and then the mentorship as well. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but... Um, what's what's your perspective? That, what have you seen? I've definitely seen that it um, networking and forming those relationships with leaders, male leaders in the company has been really beneficial for me um, to have people advocating on my behalf there's some research that shows that when you know especially for women if you have others advocating on your behalf whether it's for Mm -hmm. a promotion or a raise or other things that that oftentimes go that oftentimes helps women a lot more than advocating for themselves of course Um, and so i've seen that it does have a huge impact for me personally and um i try to especially the female leaders on my team, try to set them up with upper-level male mentors to help get them kind of break into that network. What kind of company do you work for? Um, I work for an allergy services company. Allergy services company? Is that what you said? Yes, and mm-hmm. we're a remote company, so we do have a we do have a home office, mm-hmm. but the majority of our workforce, um, I would say seven six or six sevenths of our workforce is remote in the field across the country, mm-hmm. which makes, you know, setting people up with mentors, especially male mentors, 
that are in leadership positions even that much more important because mm-hmm. not everyone's in an office interacting with each other or they wouldn't have that opportunity to interact with each other since they're remote. So so how'd that program get off the ground? Do you know? Were you around when it happened or have you heard about it? Because I think some of our listeners might be interested to to try to initiate something like that in their own organizations. Um, so there wasn't an official mentoring program at my company. After I'd read um, mm-hmm. some of this research and started to kind of think through actually created um, a mentoring program for my team just because I have more of a network within the company and can match people um, based on strengths or um, maybe what they're interested in moving into and also looking at the reverse mentorship. So what maybe could that upper leader gain from mentoring somebody in a lower position as well? Such an important aspect of the of the mentor protege relationship, right? I, I I know from many many years, decades now of of teaching uh, undergrad and MBA students that so many of them feel like they have nothing to offer people in senior positions, and so they feel inhibited or afraid to to come forward and trying to initiate contact and and to demonstrate their value. Uh, wh- what have you learned about that dynamic? Um, Well, those have been some of the strategic mentorships lately, especially um, that I've set up on the team, and it completely changed the dynamic um, with how my team works with operation leaders and understanding some of our struggles um, Hmm. and vice versa. How how has it changed? I I assume it's made things better, more informed, more more mutually supportive. Yeah, absolutely. Mutually supportive um, just by some of those mentorships occurring, increased communication between um, our Mm -hmm. team and the operations team. And I think made us more of a true team working together and, you know, towards the same goal rather than maybe feeling as if we're working against each other, more siloed. That sounds like you have initiated a really important semi-informal, semi-formal kind of uh, way of connecting people who wouldn't otherwise have access to senior leaders um, and that it's having a really positive effect. Have you se- Was there resistance to this? Were there people who were thinking, oh, this is unfair, I'm not getting the same advantage? Did you run into any of that? Um, I, did, I haven't run into any of that. There were some people, because this was something that I put together as a way to, um, you know, develop, selfishly develop my team and the people on my team. Um, So I put some formal structure around it. There was um, some pushback, though, from some of the people on my team. They're already pretty, they're traveling a lot. They have multiple hats that they wear. Mm. Um, So there was some pushback like, oh, she's adding one more thing to our plate. Right that, you know, another call, another mandatory Mm. thing. Um, And some of those, I would say I got some emails and some calls or during my one-on-ones with some of those folks that were initially like, oh, one more thing. Yeah. That it was like the the best thing. How'd you get them on board? You know, it it, it happened after their first mentor call. that like, broke the ice with these mentors because it, some of them know about each other, but some of them have never met. And so we put some 
um, like icebreakers and some initial activities mm-hmm. in place mm-hmm. to then build or, you know, find common ground first and build off of that. Um, common ground. And yeah, find common ground. And then I think after that, having somebody that isn't your manager can still give you advice. Maybe you mm-hmm. can vent to. Um, maybe you get insight into another part of the business. Everybody wins. Yeah, everybody wins. Um, And it's just, it's it's breaking those barriers that that, uh, Frank Dobbin was talking about that you have, it seems, done a really powerful thing in helping to to reduce those social boundaries and to open up the flow of, you know, connection between different kinds of people uh, and that your experience has been a really positive one. Um, So what advice would you give to people who are listening about doing something like that in their organization? Um, I would say start start small, mm-hmm. and for me, it was really important um, not just to have, like, the anecdotal stories, like some of the ones I've shared with you. Um, it was really helpful. Like, I needed to have the data behind it to prove that it was helpful mm. um, to get buy-in mm-hmm. to, you know, be able to myself allocate time sure. to building this, even though it was, you know, an informal kind of process improvement brainchild. So I would say make sure there's some sort of measurable to go along with it. Um, I did like a skills assessment that I had found online somewhere and had people, um, all of the people on my team rate their skill levels um, on all of these different, all of these different skills, just like skills inventory. Mm-hmm. And then I focused, I asked the mentors and the mentees to focus on, um, like, three skills during their course of mentorship. Uh And then I surveyed them halfway during the mentorship and then at the end to see if their self-assessment increased at all in terms of their skill level to build a case. All right. So that's that's some data. It's not the most reliable because it is self-report data, but it's something. And that did that help to get people to at least be more open? Absolutely. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then I think the other thing, too, um, that that is helpful is getting the buy-in from the mentors and why it's valuable to the organization and to be investing in young leaders. Um, in our case, mm-hmm. I have a team of 22, so there's not 22 executives or, you know, upper level that we're able to be mentors just because we don't have that many so it gave other people, too, who maybe um, haven't had the chance to mentor opportunities to mentor somebody. Mm-hmm. And it was growing, you know, other departments of the company as well, just not my team. Wow. So do you want to tell us the name of your company? Because this is a great advertisement for, for it in terms of what you have been doing <laughs> and that other people might want to contact you and find out more about. But if you don't want, that's fine. Yeah, I can um, I can share it. I work for United Allergy Services, mm-hmm. um, and you can probably find me on LinkedIn if you um, Google United Allergy Services, and then my first name, which is Matia M A T I A, and my last name is Carrie C A R Y. Matia Carrie, thank you so much Mattia for calling Carrie. it to the show. Thank uh, and for, for the great uh, leadership that you've demonstrated at United Allergy Services in uh, really changing the game there in terms of access to 
uh, of different people to each other. What a wonderful example. I really appreciate your spending the time uh, on the work that you're doing and calling in to tell us about it. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Frank Dobbin and with the listener who called in to tell us her story and that this episode stimulated some new ideas for what you can do to make our world, your world, a more equitable one, a smaller one. Such a crucial thing for all of us to be thinking about in our world today, which is so fractious and fractured. And indeed, it's up to each one of us to take action to try to break down the barriers that separate different kinds of people from each other and all the, all the pain that that causes is something that, uh, in a small way, we can do something about. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation, building on the notion of how, uh, as, as Dobbin describes in his res- research, exposure to those who are different helps to break down barriers and create more opportunity for a wider array of people to gain access to management in, uh, in, in corporate America. Let's bring that to your world, that same idea. Is there a way for you to have a conversation with someone at work or maybe in some other part of your life who's from another, another group, another demographic group? in which your goal in this conversation is simply nothing other than finding out something about what their life is like. If you try this, and I hope you do, give a moment to consider what you just learned, what you discover through this initiative uh, about yourself in relation to others in our truly amazingly diverse world. I would love to hear from you. If you do try this and and what you learn, uh, you can write to me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter. I am Stu Friedman. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.